Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and today I'd like to share 10,000 years of patriarch. I dashed out a first draft uh, last year, but now I want to share a revised version because I've had maybe a dozen Eurekas this year, and so it needs a total rewrite. So let's go. Right. Our world is marked by the great gender divergence. In South Asia, North Africa, and the Middle East, most women remain secluded. Chinese women work, but are locked out of politics. Latin America, meanwhile, has undergone radical transformation, staging massive rallies against male violence and nearly achieving gender parity in political representation. Scandinavia still comes closest to a feminist utopia, but for most of history, Europe was far more patriarchal than matrilineal Southeast Asia and Southern Africa. What explains the great gender divergence? Well, it emerged in the 20th century as a result of the great divergence in economic and political development across countries. In countries that underwent rapid growth, technological change freed women from domestic drudgery, while industry and services increased demand for their labour. Democratization is equally fundamental. Overturning men's political dominance and impunity for violence requires relentless mobilization. Culture, however, mediates the rate at which women seize opportunities created by development and democratization. Patrilineal societies face what I call an honor income trade-off. Female employment only rises if its economic returns are sufficiently large to compensate for men's loss of honour. Otherwise, women remain secluded and surveilled with very few friends. So why do some societies have a stronger preference for female cloistering? To answer that question, we must go back 10,000 years. Over the long durée, there have been three major waves of patriarchalization: The Neolithic Revolution, pastoral nomadism, and Islam. These ancient waves help determine how gender relations in each region of the world will be transformed by the onset of modern economic growth. So in this podcast, if you bear with me, I'd like to offer some explorations of the patriarchal revolution, the three waves of patriarchalization in Eurasia, pre-colonial Africa, Americas, and Southeast Asia. Then we move on to the Eurasian divergence before skipping to colonial Latin America, considering the death of matriliny. Then we discuss communism and feminist activism. All comments and criticisms are welcome. This is a work in progress. Okay, so let's kick off with the patriarchal revolution. Importantly, there was no pre-Neolithic feminist utopia. If recent studies of foragers are any guide, during the 100,000 years that our ancestors had spent as hunter-gatherers, girls may have been forced into marriage, often polygonously beaten and raped. However... Since female labour is a crucial element of the forager economy, women at least are not secluded and live alongside their own kin. With the advent of early agriculture, women continue to contribute to their households by working in the fields. For example, Katal Hayuk, 7000 BC, was not marked by strong gender divisions of labour. Women and men performed the same work, ate the same diet and spent similar time outdoors. Bones and burials suggest little difference in gender roles, though male violence doubtless persisted. 
Likewise, in Bronze Age Thailand, men and women were buried with similar grave goods. In ancient Egypt's Old Kingdom, from 2700 to from 2700 BC, women had equal rights, socialized freely, supervised with other female workers, and commanded respect as priestesses to female goddesses. Male dominance was exacerbated by three forces. Nomadic pastoralists inherited wealth amid insecurity and religion. So here I have seven key propositions. Number one, nomadic pastoralists were especially patriarchal. Gangs of male youths banded together for external conquest. They raided communities, slaughtering local men and institutionalizing male dominance. That pastoralism spread into Europe, South Asia, the Horn of Africa and later the Americas. My second proposition is that inherited wealth was another major driver. Cattle, the plough, irrigation, raised crop yields, making land itself a valuable asset. Cereals could then be traded and stored. Wealth, especially amid insecurity, turned patrilineal inheritance into a key element of social organisation. The more wealth a son inherited, the greater his reproductive success by attracting wives, concubines and rearing offspring. But... That was threatened by raiders. So patrilocal lineages formed to defend valuable herds and land, as well as to provide irrigation, infrastructure, insurance, healthcare, investment. Then to promote intergenerational cooperation within those patrilocal lineages, children were socialized to privilege lineage. Close-knit patrilineal kinship spawned cultures of honor. That lineage, cooperation, male honour and intermarriage alliances were only maintained by controlling female sexuality. Then, moralising supernatural punishment emerged with the expansion of states. Um, and also as states became more complex and hierarchical. Rulers legitimised their authority by claiming a divine right to rule. But... If the gods were on their side, how could rulers explain floods, droughts and earthquakes? Well, in male-dominated societies, they scapegoated women. They scapegoated disobedient women. Fear of supernatural punishment then led to heightened compliance and social policing of female chastity. Islam was uh, and became especially patriarchal. Cultural evolution, however, was mediated by geography. Oceans and parasites constrained the spread of pastoralism, draft animals and Islam. Protected from these major forces of patriarchalization, the Americas, Southeast Asia, Gulf of Guinea and Southern Africa maintained bilateral and matrilineal successions. With little concern for paternity, women were not secluded and folklore was not male biased. Okay, so that's the overarching theory, to the best of my understanding. Now I want to go into the three waves of patriarchalization in Eurasia. Eurasian societies became increasingly patriarchal due to migration by steppe pastoralists, the emergence of inherited wealth amid insecurity, and male organized religions, especially Islam. The stronger the reliance on kinship, as well as the greater concern for purity, the stricter the surveillance, inhibiting women's freedom and friendships. <clears throat> Pastoral raiders erupted out of the Pontic steppe. 
They were armed with chariots, wagons, battle axes and mounted archery. They glorified a brutish masculinity and imposed patrilineal clans. From Spain to Korea, the male line harks back to the steppe. How do we know those population movements were so important? Because societies with the exact same geography, technology and socioeconomic complexity differed enormously on gender. The Minoans and Etruscans predated the ancient Greeks and Romans. The Minoans mastered engineering, flood defences, terraced agriculture, large-scale manufacturing, metal armour and maritime trade networks. Yet these Minoan paintings... They show women occupying prominent social positions in outdoor assemblies, fraternising freely with men. Women are depicted driving chariots, not caring for children indoors. The Gautian Code from Crete, dating 500 years after the Minoans, provides further clues. Legally, women could choose their husbands, inherit property and divorce unilaterally. Rapists were punished, but adulterous females were not. That suggests weak policing of female sexuality. Citizenship was also inherited bilaterally. If a free woman married a serf, her children would be free. The Etruscan civilization was also technologically advanced, oligarchic and socially stratified between citizens and slaves. But tombs depict women mingling in public, dining with men, excelling in athletics, blessing new kings in their roles as priestesses. However... After these places were conquered by the Mycenaeans, which is the ancient Greeks and the Romans, with genetic roots in the Eurasian steppe, female friendships radically diminished. Now, patrilineal kinship was imperative for the ancient Greeks. A woman without brothers was obliged to marry her nearest paternal relative. And given strong concerns for paternity, inheritance and citizenship, wealthy families secluded female kin. Women's names were not uttered in public. They were only recognised as appendages to husbands and fathers. As Aristotle remarked, a man is naturally superior to women and so the man should rule and the woman should be ruled. Ancient Greece and Rome differed from other patriarchal empires in one important respect, however. They prescribed monogamy, and that idea was later adopted by the church. So, now I'm shifting a little. About 4,000 years ago, steppe migrants reproduced with the Indus Valley population to become ancestral North Indians. Together they developed the Vedic religion, differentiating between different castes. Brahmins topped the caste hierarchy, and today these groups have a higher share of ancestry from the steppe. Indians have been marrying strictly within their jati for the past 2,000 years. A few castes owned estates, while others engaged in pastoralism, farm work, crafts and bonded labour. Occupations became inherited and stratified. To preserve jati and dogmi, girls were married young, so they could not possibly reproduce for the wrong lineage. Female obedience was also mandated by the Manusmriti. Seclusion and sun bias may have been more marked on pastoralists in the northwest and along the Nyanjetic plains, since loamy soils allow plough cultivation, reducing the demand for women's field work, and processing wheat necessitates women's home-based labour. Now I want to go to the Arab conquests, which occurred in the 7th century. 
when Arabs conquered vast swathes of territory across the Middle East and North Africa. This catalyzed a deterioration in women's autonomy, most especially in Egypt. Conquered people gained rights and tax exemptions if they converted to Islam, recited the Quran, gained an Arab patron and adopted tribal lineages. Patrilineal kinship was simultaneously reinforced by Sharia law's recognition of male agnates in inheritance and patrilineal ownership of children. But it was also threatened by Muslim women's inheritance rights, which could dissipate family wealth. Cousin marriage provided a solution because it allowed for the consolidation of family wealth, strength and trust. Cousin marriage remains especially high in Muslim countries formerly under the Umayyad Caliphate. And as Egyptians shifted from bilateral to patrilineal tribes, they restricted women's rights and freedoms. Iraq became the seat of the Sunni Muslim empire. Persian theologians managed state institutions of learning and played a crucial role developing Islamic ethics. They constructed men as intellectually superior, uniquely capable of reason, and thus rightful patriarchs. Men could only achieve piety by preventing fitna, that is, moral corruption, and policing women. Clerics repeatedly prescribed gender segregation, barring women from communal prayers in the mosque. 12th century Damascan and Kyrian women did defy those prescriptions. Occasionally they even preached. But open dissent was increasingly inhibited by these close-knit tribes, fear of eternal damnation, and religious authoritarianism. In the 13th century, Mamluk Sultan Basbury and clerics claimed that Egypt's famines were Allah's punishment for women's un-Islamic practices, and they were ordered to stay at home. The Atlas Mountains and remote valleys of Pakistan were impenetrable, however, and by escaping into that rugged terrain, the Amazigh resisted Arabization. The Kalash similarly stayed polytheistic. And women exercised autonomy and continued to move freely. Now, India was ruled by Turkic Muslims for over 600 years. Mughal rule was concentrated in North India, on the upper Gangetic Plain. Women were captured in raids, sold as sex slaves. North Indian society became more gender segregated. Since the ruling class practiced purdah, it came to signify status. Upwardly mobile families followed suit to symbolize respectability. With Islamization and the adoption of the plow, East Bengali women, once integral to wet rice cultivation, slowly retreated to winnowing, soaking, parboiling and husking, all within the confines of the family courtyard. India is not unique in this respect. Seclusion always heightens under Islam. In China, meanwhile, male honor, supremacy, and sexual segregation have always been idealized, for at least the past thousand years. Men preserve their righteousness and respect by confining women to the inner realm. Women who sacrificed themselves for honor were praised, while those who upset cosmic balance were blamed for floods and earthquakes. But China was not always so patriarchal. When people actually turned away from Confucianism after the collapse of the Han dynasties, uh, from which was uh, 589 CE, women were actually recognized for their wisdom, talents, and bravery. Taoism upheld gender complementarity. 
And before the advent of printing, mothers played a vital role in educating their sons. Likewise, in pre-Confucian Korea and Japan, women ruled. The cult of chastity really emerged during the Song Dynasty. That's the 10th to 13th centuries. Sweeping away the old aristocracy, Song rulers built a meritocratic central government. Educated men competed for civil service exams, commerce boomed, creative cultures flourished and cities expanded. But those new opportunities were monopolized by men. Paintings of Kaifeng's bustling city streets show porters, innkeepers, monks and traders and a conspicuous absence of women. Girls' feet were broken and bound. This is the rise of foot binding. In poetry too, women shied from public view or else were pilloried by male critics. Anonymous wall writings convey their sadness, anxiety and abuse. Girls were increasingly killed at birth. Daughters had become exorbitant as families competed over ideal grooms by offering ever more generous dowries. And law, law itself entrenched male advantage. For example, two years penal servitude for female adultery. Confucian revivalism was a key catalyst here, spread through mass printing and state exams. A burgeoning literature heaped praise on female obedience, confinement and self-sacrifice. Patrilineal kinship was another important catalyst. Under the song, the gentry could only survive the turbulence of meritocracy, partible inheritance and violent attacks by pooling resources within their lineage. Extended families increasingly bound together to finance their son's education so they might pass the civil service exam and secure upward mobility. Paying for education as well as irrigation, infrastructure and defence required intra-lineage solidarity. Chinese families ensured tight-knit cooperation by praising filial piety, eulogising their ancestors and compiling genealogies. To safeguard patrilineal purity and prestige, women were hobbled. The cult of chastity heightened even more after the brutal Mongol invasion, during which many women were raped, a tremendous assault on male honour. Han officials sought to preserve their culture by propounding Neo-Confucianism, which Mongol rulers embraced to gain local legitimacy. To summarise, females were closely policed to preserve and improve their marriage prospects in societies that prioritise lineage, purity and honour. And although families might be tempted to supplement their meagre earnings by putting their daughter to work, that incentive had to be weighed against the potential loss of honour and the severity of social sanctions. Since no family wanted to deviate from that norm unilaterally, all were trapped in a negative feedback loop in which women stayed close to the home. Then women competed over grooms with guarantees of paternal certainty, such as footbinding, seclusion, virginity tests and infibulation. Now, that's Eurasia. Oceans and parasites shielded the Americans, the Gulf of Guinea, Southern Africa and the Philippines from those three major waves of patriarchalization, which are the steppe pastoralists, draft animals and Islam. With little intergenerational transmission of wealth, women move more freely in those matrilineal or bilateral communities. Folklore was not male-biased and language was not gendered. In pre-colonial Philippines, land was not seen as a major source of wealth. 
Men paid a dowry of gold, jewelry, or slaves. Daughters were valuable. Divorce was common. If a woman wanted to remarry, she could take her property, half the children, and half the shared slaves. Kinship and economic interdependence much enhanced women's bargaining power. Men even wore presumably rather painful penis pins to enhance women's sexual pleasure because women insisted on it. In the 16th century, most spiritual leaders were women. Men who wanted to be priests had to dress and act like women. They had to be effeminate. For centuries in the Philippines, Thailand, Cambodia and Laos, women enjoyed premarital sex. They traveled freely as traders. They owned land. They divorced freely. They worked as royal bodyguards. They held high office and were worshipped as goddesses. Andean civilization similarly upheld gender complementarity. Husbands and wives were portrayed as providing commensurate labor for household survival. Women's work as weavers and cultivators was valued. Descent was traced down both the male and the female line. The moon was the supreme goddess of the Incas, worshipped as the creator of women in a cult led by women. They also permitted premarital sexuality. Women's weaving was fundamental to the Inca Empire. Textiles were requisitioned from commoner women as tribute, redistributed as payment for soldiers, presented as ceremonial gifts, sacrificed to the gods, dispensed to provincial lords to secure loyalty, and offered to the Spanish to build alliances. Textiles, rather than currency or land, were revered by Andes for wealth and prestige. Furthermore, the Andeans' only domesticated large animal was the llama, which can hardly be harnessed to the plow. So land, land never became a valuable inheritance that might enhance a son's reproductive success. Bilateral descent persisted. Sub-Saharan Africa, meanwhile, was mostly matrilineal, at least until 3,000 years ago. That usually means greater freedom of mobility and stronger female networks, as indicated by Audrey Richards' 1930s ethnographies of the Bemba. Slash and burn agriculture meant there was no property to inherit. Families just needed labor. To demonstrate his readiness for marriage, a young man provided his in-laws with several years of labor. Should he prove unsatisfactory, she could easily divorce and would be welcomed by kin. Women were relatively autonomous, heading their own spheres of knowledge and influence. But matrilineage is unstable. It waned with the spread of cattle. Nomadic pastoralists spread into much of eastern and southern Africa through male-biased migration. Pastoralists killed indigenous men and reproduced with the women. External conquests may have been motivated by primogeniture and polygamy. If the firstborn son inherits most of the cattle and attracts multiple wives... Then, left with nothing, the younger brothers may try to advance their status by banding together in outward conquest. Patrilineage, once established, is self-sustaining. Sons who inherit cattle wealth can attract or procure additional wives and rear more children, whose farm work in turn increases family wealth. So cousin marriage, then, is often preferred to make sure that bride wealth payments do not deplete the herd. And that endogamy of cousin marriage reinforces clan solidarity. Pastoralists like the Maasai and the Tswana 
also institutionalized patriarchy through exclusively male village assemblies and sexist proverbs, naturalizing male dominance and female freedoms. A team of oxen is never led by females, otherwise the oxen will fall into a ditch, he said. Or they, another one, uh, a man is like a seed, he spreads his branches everywhere. But that cultural evolution was mediated by ecology. Pastoralism could not thrive in regions infected by the setse fly. And when Islam spread across Africa, it was predominantly among societies that owned cattle. Pastoral Fuller then later launched jihads and established Sharia law. Africa's tropical forests, meanwhile, were plagued by malaria. Many children died. Yet their labour was keenly sought. These communities valued and needed wealth in people. High infant mortality combined with land abundance sustained perpetual demand for labour. And although societies in the Gulf of Guinea were often patrilineal, that specifically concerned control over the children, not inheritance of wealth. So by paying a bride wealth, grooms gain control over the children. And that reverence for fertility may help explain why women were revered as creators. They exercised moral authority as oracles, goddesses, queens. But gender, gender is never set in stone. It is continually contested. Women in the Gulf of Guinea only maintain their autonomy by harnessing female networks of solidarity and and publicly berating men who overstepped the line. Demand for female labor did not entail their autonomy, importantly. In, um, in the Andes, beautiful virgins, Aklas, were seized by the Inca to become sacrifices, consecrated to the gods to become concubines or secondary wives of provincial headmen. Commoner women were required to pay tribute in cloth, which was gifted to male Inca soldiers. Over in sub-Saharan Africa, the Ashanti, the Tiv, Chimbu, and Igbu, they all practiced female genital cutting, as well as female pawnship and polygamy. Right, now let us go to the Eurasian divergence. So, medieval Europe was absolutely patriarchal, but it possessed several latent advantages. Nuclear families without cousin marriage, participatory assemblies, and state institutions. How did that all emerge? Well, here are the facts, the best of my understanding. Patrilineal clans emerged in Europe as a result of colonization by horse-riding steppe people. Then, many thousands of years later, Frankish empires blended Germanic tribes, participatory assemblies, and Roman state institutions. Both of those were run by men. Then from 300 to 1300 CE, common era, the Roman Catholic Church and Carolingian Empire tried to stamp out cousin marriage and polygamy. Noble families leveraged incest prohibitions to prevent their wealth, to prevent their rivals from consolidating wealth. English families were nuclear before the Black Death. Peasants disregarded lineage and rarely exchanged work with extended kin. And there was myriad compliance with uh, church strictures. And that can't be explained by anything but religion. In the 14th century, English marriages seldom occurred during Lent, nor if men had prior relations with her kinswomen, as was prescribed by the church. 
Young men and women often worked in service until they had saved enough to establish their own nuclear households. The age of marriage was thus unusually high in Northwestern Europe, especially when wages were low. This exogamy of marrying outside kinship was accelerated by precociously deep wage labor markets and urbanization. Now, the nuclear household's vulnerability necessitated married women's continued employment. Husbands seldom objected, trusting their wives' competence, men bequeathed land and families, family affairs to her control. Couples cooperated as a conjugal unit. Northwestern women worked as dairy farmers, spinners, seamstresses, hawkers, midwives and shopkeepers. In cities like London, Leiden and Paris, where economic opportunities were greater, market women were assertive, self-reliant and streetwise. Where guilds were weak, women gained professional pride and skilled crafts like seamstresses in old regime France. But women's work was mostly low-skilled unorganized and often home-based, like in spinning. Before contraception, infant formula, electricity and washing machines, mothers' lives were relentlessly interrupted. 60% of their prime age years were spent either pregnant or nursing. Screaming toddlers forestalled the pursuit of skilled trades, economic autonomy and broad social networks, beyond other similarly marginalized female kin and neighbors. Men were far more able to seize new economic opportunities. So as Europe transitioned from feudalism to commercialization with larger scale, more capital intensive production, men honed their crafts and traveled as merchants. Men consolidated their advantage by establishing guilds that monopolized lucrative ventures and locked women out. Men's dominance was entrenched by a plethora of fraternal orders in the government, judiciary, religion, uh, medicine, and universities. Vulnerable women with weaker social capital struggled to protect themselves from persecution as competing Catholic and Protestant churches sought to demonstrate their superior power to protect people from witchcraft. They burned women in their thousands. 95% of writers in this period were men propagating patriarchal ideas. But from 1600, that started to change, starting with the Protestants. Rather than defer to religious authorities, as persists across the Middle East and North Africa, Protestants championed sola scriptura. Each man and woman should read and interpret the Bible for themselves. That catalyzed rising literacy and gender parity. Women increasingly became published authors. The Enlightenment heralded yet greater transformation. Europe and North America became more scientific, secular and democratic. Inventors, entrepreneurs and artisans thronged to discuss great discoveries. As peers praised innovation, others eagerly experimented and gained prestige. Taverns and coffee houses became hotbeds of collaborative creativity and political debate. Saloons were surprisingly conducive to patents. Members gained tremendous insider benefits. Freemasons amassed knowledge, respectability and elite patronage. Clubs also went to court to protect members' reputations, enabling them to take far greater risks in the public sphere. Now, 
if you grant that this rich associational sphere catalyzed innovations, surely you accept that women were disadvantaged through their forced exclusion. 95% of enlightenment associations in England were male. <coughs> Exceptions include London's blue stocking gatherings and female debating societies, as well as Dutch women's Masonic lodges and scientific societies. But however gifted or determined, their contributions were generally derided. Brilliant women toiled in solitude, while men's advances were amplified on megaphones. The Ottoman Empire maintained an even stronger preference for female seclusion. Honor and commerce within kinship networks was contingent upon eliminating rumors of female impropriety. Clerics and concerned publics repeatedly petitioned the Sultan to crack down on women's freedoms. But in some respects, the Ottoman Empire was quite similar to Europe and the Americas. Ordinary women worked in textiles, spinning thread and weaving cloth at home. Peasants invariably worked in family fields. Ottoman towns were far more gender segregated, I grant. Hawking in busy city streets meant fraternising with non-kin, fueling gossip, jeopardising a woman's honour and thwarting her marriage prospects. Only the poorest, most desperate women peddled food in Cairo. Divorced women who supported their children by trading at the market could even lose custody rights. In Lebanon, Baptisms only recorded boys' names, reflecting their patrilineal primacy. Women were also absent from mosques. But although public life was gender segregated, canny Ottoman women used Islamic courts to advance their autonomy. In 16th century Turkey, women held independent property rights to urban and rural real estate. That's houses, shops, mills, orchards and kinyards, as well as donkeys and goats. They also engaged in credit networks. In Istanbul, wealthy women founded madrasas, libraries and religious foundations. In Damascus, women leveraged Sharia law to secure maintenance. Peasants and lower-class Egyptian women pursued their interests in Islamic courts in towns, trading property and pursuing thieves. 19th century, Egyptian elite women also invested in businesses. They litigated in court, though intermediaries usually operated on their behalf while they remained secluded. In Iran, imperial wives and concubines schemed to promote their sons. They were by no means passive. Likewise, in colonial India, women worked on fa fa family farms, but they usually married early and seldom mixed with outsiders. North Indian towns were especially gender segregated. That maintained jati endogamy, which was the foundation of trust, commerce and mutual insurance. So, in some, Eurasia underwent an important divergence. Endogamy tightened in India, the Middle East and North Africa. East Asia remained exogamous, while Europe became more nuclear, democratic, and scientific. Now I want to go to colonial Latin America. Spanish conquistadors butchered and enslaved Native Americans. They stole their land and forced them onto new reservations. European endemics wiped out entire populations. 56 million people died. Indigenous women were tortured, raped, and forced to weave by colonial administrators. Landowners, magistrates, and clergy. Those women were unpaid, underfed, and beaten. Family violence may have intensified under the stress. 
The Europeans also brought horses. When the Plains Indians adopted nomadic pastoralism, warfare escalated. Successful tribes grew larger through raiding and more hierarchical. The best raiders gained prestige and multiple young brides. They punished disobedience with gang rape. Equestrian societies in the southern cone also became more stratified. A major wave of patriarchalization had come to the Americas. In the Andes, however, indigenous people fiercely maintained their own traditions. They kept their own language, reciprocal labor, religious practices, and community-sponsored festivals. Andean non-elite permitted premarital sex and encouraged trial marriage, deeming it necessary for companionate marriage. Catholic priests were aghast and they threatened punishment. Spaniards decried trial marriage as diabolical, but they were ignored. The adoption of Catholicism ended women's previously diverse religious roles. That's absolutely true. But women continued to work, own, inherit, and bequeath property. They also participated in their local religious life and were prominent in protests. In the 1780 indigenous rebellion, women were military strategists, leading armies, organizing supplies, and defending territory. After the Tupac Amaru rebellion of 1783, 43% of arrested leaders were women. Both the indigenous populations prior to the European conquest and the European conquerors themselves had relatively low rates of cousin marriage, polygamy, and extended families co-residents. There was variation by class and geography, however. Wealthy families used endogamy to consolidate property. Elite white girls were cloistered and chaperoned. Mayans were patrilineal, patrilocal, which motivated similarly close surveillance. For the most part, uh, for the vast majority of Latin Americans, kinship was weak. In, the, in 16th century Mexico, a quarter of households were female-headed. Even higher rates were recorded in 19th century Sao Paulo. The lower classes often formed informal unions, which broke when men left to exploit export opportunities in the agricultural frontier. Women left behind fended for themselves in home-based textiles and small shops. Men's honour was still contingent on female chastity, though. But female, but single women and, and widows, they operated independently, especially in towns where they traded in markets. In 1788, female silk spinners in Mexico City organized their own guild. Like Europe, men decided the laws of the land, but kinship uh, was relatively weak. Okay, now I want to discuss a transformation in kinship, that is the death of matrilineal. Now, colonialism is often blamed here, especially for the death of matrilineal in sub-Saharan Africa. Colonial officials are said to have strengthened male advantage by favoring men in agricultural training and labor markets, while Christian missions promoted female domesticity. Women arguably became more dependent on male breadwinners and lost roles as religious leaders. But the precise causal mechanisms remain unclear. Colonial bureaucracies were tiny in sub-Saharan Africa. Agricultural support was meager and technological upgrading was minimal. Labor markets were minuscule. Imperialism did not benefit most African men, so it cannot have radically heightened their advantage. Moreover, even if a few men gained temporary benefits, Southern and Eastern Africa now have some of the most gender-equal parliaments in the world. That suggests that colonialism did not prevent female leadership in the very long run. 
Imperialism's strongest impact on gender was more likely indirect. Development generally leads to female emancipation and imperialism should be blamed to the extent that it has inhibited development. Imposing arbitrary borders, grouping multiple ethnicities into large states while also catalyzing violence, corruption and authoritarianism. The shift to patriliny was more likely a consequence of rising land values and commercialization. And that transition was often violent. Uh, keen to wrest control of valuable, valuable land, communities in India, Southeast Asia and Africa have hunted and killed women as uh, widows, as wi witches. Marketization also undermines matrilocality. Um, so that's where a young man is a stranger in his wife's village working on their fields under their authority. You see, once men gain wages and economic autonomy, they establish their own independent homes. But if growth is low and job queues are long, men may monopolize new opportunities. And that's precisely what happened in northern Rhodesia, incidentally where I did my PhD. Uh, men left their matrilineal villages to gain employment up in Copper Belt. They lived in nuclear homes. And given the dearth of good jobs, women were now dependent on male breadwinners. No society has ever got rich and stayed matrilocal. Poverty is no feminist utopia, however, and I cannot stress that enough. Fertility remains high in places with low returns to schooling and low opportunity costs of childbearing. Impoverished families cannot heavily invest in all their children. Girls marry early, bear many children, become burdened by caregiving and struggle to accumulate the capital, knowledge and networks that challenge dominant men. Child brides are more likely to be abused. That economic desperation also exacerbates stress and marital disputes. Sub-Saharan Africa also has low population density and low state penetration. If victims cannot get help, violence continues with impunity. Living in isolated rural communities, growing up in violent homes, never hearing of alternative perspectives, women may try to, perceive, uh, to endure what they perceive as inevitable. That's why the Industrial Revolution was so important. Which Britain led? Britain led the Industrial Revolution and with this came the male breadwinner model. After 1750, gender pay gaps widened. Mechanization displaced women's manual spinning. Job queues were long and men were at the front. Firms preferred to hire, train and promote men. Women were more likely to exit upon childbirth and leave early to take care of the kids. Employers would then lose their investment. In Victorian England, many teenage girls desperately wanted to work, to have a little economic autonomy and join the public sphere. Factory work was horrific, but girls still saw it as preferable to the relentless drudgery of care work which confined them to the home and provided no rewards. Yet their earnings were so low and the volume of housework was so large that parents didn't consider it worthwhile. So in areas with low labour demand, girls were often saddled with childcare and scrubbing while their brothers were out earning their own money and being valued as financial contributors. Now, due to sex discrimination in the labour market, women in Victorian England desperately needed to marry to survive and they remained dependent on men's good graces. But men were distinctly unreliable. So these rising male wages did not lift all boats. Moreover, they amplified patriarchy, endowing men with pride, status and authority. Economic growth in the 20th century is what eroded gender inequalities. 
When firms ran out of qualified men, they eagerly recruited women. Seeing growing returns to skilled work, parents reduced fertility and invested in education. Contraception, infant formula, electricity, and washing machines were time-saving engines of liberation. As divorces soared in the 1970s, marriage provided unreliable insurance, and so many women ceased to rely on a male breadwinner. Career girls pursued new opportunities in medicine, business, public administration, and the law. And as women thrived in traditionally masculine domains, others ceased to presume them less intelligent. Female friendships laid the foundations for feminist activism and consciousness by speaking out, emboldening each other, gaining a sense of rightful resistance and realizing broad support for social change. Women came to expect and demand better. These changes occur if female employment rises. Women's proclivity to move into new economic opportunities is much lower in patrilineal societies where there is strong preference for female chastity. So the economic returns to female employment must then be sufficiently high to compensate for the loss of honour. And that's precisely what happened in East Asia. Rapid growth enabled women to liberate themselves from parental control. Daughters migrated to cities where they made friends, bemoaned unfair practices and discovered more egalitarian alternatives. They gained face, meaning respect and social standing, by remitting earnings, supporting their families and showing filial piety just like sons. Pay gaps have narrowed in Taiwan and China just as they did in the USA and China. Leveraging economic growth and democratization, Taiwanese women closed gender pay gaps, became politically competitive, and now lead the nation. So too in Muslim lands like Turkey, Kuwait, and Qatar. Female employment has risen with tightening demand. Economic growth is a seriously underrated engine of gender equality. Trust in states, markets, and the rule of law are also important, enabling broader cooperation, beyond kin, and lessening male bravado. But growth isn't the only mechanism. Communism. Communism may be the world's greatest top-down intervention for female economic empowerment. Female employment is especially high in post-communist countries, as is gender parity and senior management. Over 40% of Russia's published economists and business leaders are women. Nearly half the world's self-made female billionaires are Chinese. In East Asia, women who grew up under communism are especially competitive as suggested by natural and lab experiments. Vietnam, Georgia, China, and Mongolia have the smallest gender gaps in competitive chess, which in the rest of the world is a male preserve. Socialist central planners needed women because five-year plans typically set high production targets. In order to supplement their low wages, women were enticed with generous maternity leave and childcare. The workbook was their passport to apartments, holidays, and even medical care. Jobs diminished reliance on husbands, not only financially, but also in terms of state benefits. But if communism was so egalitarian when it came to employment, how come they're still so sexist? In world value surveys, men in post-communist countries give much more patriarchal answers than men in never-communist societies when asked whether men are better political leaders, if boys are more entitled to university education, and if scarce jobs should be reserved for men. Another curiosity is although post-communist countries are generally more patriarchal than comparable peers, there is a curious heterogeneity. 
within Central Asia, formerly communist countries are now the most gender equal amongst the Muslim majority countries. Why might the exact same intervention advance women's status in some places and retard it in others? Well, two, I have two propositions for you. Number one, by suffocating civil society, communism choked off independent women's movements, which are vital for women's political power and protection. Number two, but Central Asia had low potential for feminist activism since patrilineal clans restricted women's mobility. So by decapitating religious resistance, executing dissidents and demolishing mosques, propelling women into the workforce, communism actually ended centuries of seclusion in Central Asia. The Soviets tripled capital investment in Central Asia with targets for productivity and female employees. Girls were educated in secular schools and competed in team sports. Muslim headscarves were prohibited. Women were now graduating as doctors, lawyers and scientists. Female employment remains high in post-Soviet Central Asia. Inequalities persist for sure, but the counterfactual is Iran, Afghanistan and Pakistan, where most women remain secluded. Okay, now to the penultimate part is feminist activism. High female employment is absolutely no guard against male violence or misogyny. A, a woman may still be abused at home, harassed on city streets and locked out of parliaments. If men monopolize prestigious positions, others may revere them as natural leaders. Women may doubt their capabilities, be reluctant to put themselves forward or vote for others. Seldom see egalitarian alternatives or successful resistance. Potential allies remain invisible and women reluctantly comply with a seemingly unchangeable status quo. They keep their heads down, take care of the kids and endure patriarchal dominance. Feminist activism is fundamental to breaking this pluralistic ignorance, for overcoming a despondency trap. In secular democracies, it can spread like wildfire, igniting dissent and deviation. Urbanization and untrammeled media are like tinder to the flame. Strolling down the streets of Buenos Aires, one realizes widespread contestation, political graffiti and viral hashtags denounce maquista violence. Ni una menos, not one woman less. Young Argentinian activists deck their wrists, their necks and backpacks with a green kerchief symbolizing women's righteous resistance. And as thousands of women demonstrate for gender parity in politics, they foster feminist consciousness. Their peers come to see inequalities as unfair and problematic. When organizations secure reforms, citizens learn that they can overturn unfair laws and practices through relentless mobilization. Sparks fly, public dissent enables ideas to spread across peer groups. Inspired by advocates in the media, teenagers message their friends, learning of more egalitarian others come to expect and demand better. Through that relentless mobilization in Latin America, women have successfully secured gender quotas, reproductive rights and broken the silence around sexist violence. Their successes reflect three features of the continent. Weak constraints on female mobility, enabling rising female employment, female-headed households and strong networks, as well as democratization, myriad social movements and economic development with attendant urbanization, internet penetration, secularism and more institutionalized parties. Now that strongly contrasts with South Asia, where the dearth of good jobs has exacerbated reliance on kin, which in turn perpetuates jati, endogamy, social surveillance and burden. 
as well as the Middle East, where insecure authoritarians have bolstered their legitimacy by inviting clerics to influence the curriculum, inhibiting secular enlightenment. An authoritarian China, where dissent is silenced. West Africa, meanwhile, ethno-religious fragmentation has been an obstacle to the formation of mass women's movements. Activists must overcome ethnic and religious divisions in order to advance their interests politically, and they cannot rely on an otherwise homogeneous gender-based identity. Yet women who primarily identify with their ethnicity may have little appetite for such campaigns, preferring to be governed by co-ethnics. An Igbo woman doesn't just want a woman, she wants an Igbo. Even if women privately support gender quotas, distrust may dampen willingness to invest in sustained mobilization. Activism becomes sporadic. All of this has been exacerbated by the historical legacies of the slave trade, colonialism, and the arrival of Islam and Christianity. In the transatlantic slave trade, 12 million enslaved people were taken from Africa to the Americas. A further 6 million were exported in other trades. In the struggle to survive, people kidnapped neighbors, family and friends. Intensive raiding and insecurity appear to have long-run cultural effects. Africans who distrusted others may have been more likely to evade capture and then socialize their children to be distrustful. Today, distrust of relatives, neighbors and local government remains higher in places that suffered intensive raiding. West Africa suffered most severely from the transatlantic slave trade and is now marred by acute ethnic divisions, stratification and distrust. Colonial borders compounded these effects, grouping multiple ethnicities into large states, imposing nationhood where there was none. The politicization of ethnicity also affects presidential responsiveness. Ghana's leaders have always prioritized regional balance. Hence, women are less likely to be appointed to African cabinets where ethnicity is heavily politicized, like West Africa. History is not destiny, however. Democratization and women's legislative representation improve gender parity in cabinet portfolios. Urbanization promotes ethnic homogeneity. But in their absence, the visions persist and women's movements struggle to be heard. Okay, deep breath. Now let me summarize. Patriarchy has persisted for at least 10 millennia. Cereal cultivation, the plough and irrigation increased agricultural yields and raised land values. Accumulated assets were then pooled, protected and inherited by male lineages who maintained genealogical purity and male honour by cloistering women. Seclusion never took hold in African, Andean or Southeast Asian societies that privileged wealth in people or women's weaving. Eurasia then underwent an important divergence. South Asia and the Middle East saw tightening endogamy, caste and cousin marriage, alongside religious authoritarianism. The more visible the woman, the greater the suspicion and moral ambiguity. By preventing rumour, men preserved piety, honour and inclusion within vital kinship networks. East Asia remained exogamous, while Europe became increasingly nuclear, democratic and scientific. But as long as women laboured on family farms, lacking both economic independence and their own social organisations, that global variation in kinship, institutions and religions may not have made an enormous difference. The great gender divergence really occurred in the 20th century. 
While female seclusion persists in poor patrilineal countries, gender revolutions have occurred in countries undergoing rapid economic growth, democratization, secular enlightenment, and feminist activism. For the first time in human history, women have entered labor markets en masse. They've organized politically and collectively eroded patriarchal dominance. And yet, in every single country and company boardroom, men remain at the top. Their first mover advantage has been entrenched through 21st century organisational practices, lucrative long hours and unaffordable childcare, as well as homosocial schmoozing between male bosses and juniors, and near impunity for sexual harassment. Since men are better able to capitalise on high-paying jobs with longer hours, they leapfrog up the corporate ladder and then favour male cronies. So the struggle for gender equality continues, but the lesson from the past 10,000 years of patriarchy, is that global progress is contingent upon economic growth and feminist activism. Right. Thank you so much for listening. I am Dr. Alice Evans, and this is Rocking Our Pride.